gosh, I can't remember my anatomy anymore. But you sew it into the belly. And the, I used to do this model in pigs. What you don't want to hear from your surgeon. I don't really remember my anatomy. <laughs> yeah. You just sew one, one. A goes to B. Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications, and certainly that is happening tonight. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Nayan. Hey everyone, my name's Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride. I'm not a transplant nephrologist. I don't even eat pork, and so frankly, I don't know what I'm doing here tonight. <laughs> Josh Waitsman. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Uh, my Twitter handle is jwaits. Uh, I'm not supposed to eat pork, but then I discovered prosciutto and my life was changed. Aside from that, no conflicts of interest for the episode. Excellent. Jordy? My name is Jordy Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. Much like the others, I'm not supposed to eat pork and definitely have engaged in pork belly on more than one occasion. I, I think I fall into the same camp as the uh, non-practicing kosherite and halals. I think I'm the only one here with a disclosure tonight that I am friends and have published several times with both the first and last author. Um, I'm definitely not someone who's knowledgeable in transplant. They used me for my analytic skills, but they're pretty amazing folks. So I'm probably not going to have anything negative to say. Excellent. And uh, we have a special guest tonight, and it's uh, Josh uh, Mesrich. And Josh wrote the book. Oh, my gosh. Is it From Death to Life? Is that, do I have the right name of that? I'm sorry. Josh. <laughs> it's close. When Death Becomes Life. When Death Becomes Life. And this was the NEFJC book club last summer. And to me, the book club is one of my favorite traditions in NEFJC is once a year, we pick a, a book, it's kind of a, we slow down during the summer. Instead of just reading an article, we could take the time and read an entire, an entire book. And this book was, it's part memoir of how he became a transplant surgeon and great phenomenal stories of his career as a transplant surgeon, and also part history of transplantation. And boy, the history of transplantation is way more interesting than I thought it would be with a lot of uh, heroes and villains and just people that you can't believe were our famous physicians when you hear the kind of things that they were doing. It's a really, really interesting story. And we brought him in because we're going to be talking about the Xenotransplant case report and was that American Journal of Nephrology, American Journal of Transplant, or the right... Yeah, AJT, yeah, AJT right. about the recent pig to human transplant that was kind of successful. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. Josh, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, great. Thanks for that prelude. And I will mention, I did one interview and the interviewer said Josh wrote the book, When Life Becomes Death. And he, he kept saying that. I'm like, eh, wow. it's supposed to be the other way around usually. 
But uh, that's anyways, like I'm nephrology Josh. cranked to eleven. That's like <laughs> that nephrology <laughs> reputation right there. Yeah, I kept trying to correct him, but I couldn't get him to change it. So. <laughs> but anyways, I'm Josh Mesrich. I'm a transplant surgeon at uh, the University of Wisconsin. I also uh, do research as well and have some interest in xenotransplantation. I don't eat pork either, but. In my lab, we're trying to make a transgenic pig that's kosher. So that's one of our big, uh, <laughs> we're, we're not really. Excellent. So there were two pig transplant stories. There was one at NYU and there was one at UAB, a University of Alabama, and they are slightly different. And the one at NYU, as far as I know, is still not published in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, but that was the first one. And what we actually have is the one from uh, University of Alabama, and it was... Uh, we're going to talk about the details, but I, but I want to talk a little bit about kind of the history of, of xenotransplant. The most success we've seen in xenotransplant was this, this surgeon called Reemsma, who, who was in New Orleans in the 60s. And he was kind of a crazy guy. He, after graduating medical school, he joined the army and he was in a MASH unit during the Korean War. And they say he was like the blueprint for the character Hawkeye Pierce. And that he, he showed up in, in Korea with a boot, uh, what do they call them? They're called like, a locker, like a foot locker. Boot, foot locker. Yeah. A foot locker full of scotch and made, and made a mean martini. <laughs> so, and then, you know, got fully trained in Korea, came back. And ended up in New Orleans and tried to make his mark and was got interested in xenotransplants. He had these, you know, his publication he does about this is a case reports of six patients that he transplanted. And the most remarkable one was case number three. It was a 23-year-old school teacher who was in profound kidney failure due to chronic GN. And he did an end, and the, the procedure was always the same, it was a chimpanzee. They would take both kidneys and transplant them into uh, this patient. They had access to azathioprine and steroids and external beam radiation, which is a pretty significant form of immunosuppression. And at least in this woman, it lasted eight months. Like she had a, she went back to work. I mean, this was not like, you know, you know this was a real significant success, you know, especially in er early 60s. I mean, Keith Reemsma really is one of the most most kind of colorful historical figures in transplant, you know, this Hawkeye Pierce type character, although he wasn't actually the basis for Hawkeye Pierce, but he seemed like it. He actually did 13 chimpanzee transplants and quite a few others did some too. And they had a, a lot of success, like you said. And the truth is, from an immunologic standpoint, if we were still using primates, it'd probably be working now. The challenge being breeding is difficult. People breeding primates for transplant is kind of like an Ishiguru book, like never let me go. It's very, very, <laughs> would be not acceptable to people. And then the risk of viruses from primates. And so everything shifted to pigs. Primary barrier for pigs is they have a carbohydrate called 1,3-galactose or 1,3-gal. I think every human has preformed antibodies to this carbohydrate. And uh, so there was hyperacute rejection. And this kind of stalled the, the whole field until CRISPR-Cas9 came and allowed us to do genetic engineering and, and eliminate that 1,3-gal. And then they, and they didn't stop there. The companies that are developing these pigs, they added a couple of complement inhibitor genes, human complement inhibitor genes, uh, human anticoagulant genes, two more immunomodulatory genes, and also remove some, I think there's a total of 10 genetic modifications in the pig has a name brand, has a trademark. What is it? It's Galsafe. The Galsafe pig, which was approved for transplantation by the FDA in December of 2020. I mean, they didn't actually approve it for transplantation. The FDA has not 
done that yet. But what they did was they approved the pig to be used for things like diet. There's a small number of people who have antibodies against alpha-gal. So they got it approved in that way. And I think their hope is to get it approved for transplantation. So in your book, you talk about there was a meeting among, I think, ethicists and transplant doctors. And they said, hey, we're not sure how to proceed here. And one of the big concerns was um, zoonotic viruses. And there's kind of they come in two varieties. So there's kind of traditional zoonotic viruses like porcine, CMV and hepatitis E. And those you can fix by vaccination and by raising the pigs very carefully and testing them. But the more difficult one were porcine endogenous retroviruses, which uh, Josh's book said, unfortunately, given the nickname or the abbreviation, the PERV. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what a what a perfect nickname for something that is has been blocking that field. Actually, in the early, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was quite a bit of success with genetic engineering of pigs, including a pig with a knock-in gene that was able to block complement system. And then actually in the early 2000s, they made an alpha-gal knockout in 2003, even way prior to CRISPR. Um, So that actually, that technology was much weaker, but it existed. But the thing that kind of put a moratorium on human xenotransplant was in 1997, this article about PERV came out in Nature Medicine, and they were able to show like in cells that this virus could infect human cells. And some of the transplant leaders kind of put a moratorium on doing animal to human transplants. I mean, we can talk a lot about that. Is PERV such a big deal other than the name? You know, could it really be transmitted to a human? Would it cause illness? And one of the Xeno groups, eGenesis, actually has been able to knock out all the PERVs from pig cells. So they have a line of pigs without PERV. But the one that was used in this article, PERV's not knocked out, but they've been able to breed down so there's not very much PERV, and then they're going to you know, watch for it in, in humans you know, when it ultimately goes into trials. So can I ask a question about that? So th- we see so many human viruses that get transmitted in transplant. We see CMV, we see EBV, we see other issues, BK virus, other issues that cause problems. Why is it such a big deal that it's a pig virus instead of a human virus? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And actually, before the pandemic, I might have scoffed about it. But <laughs> now everyone is a lot more touchy about the idea of animal viruses. But, you know, I think it probably comes from the real concerns with primates from things like the herpes B virus that, you know, are, are really deadly. And wait, wait, slow down. What's the story with the herpes B virus? Well, I think that I would admit I'm not a total expert on this, but primates carry a number of different viruses that can be transmitted to humans. Yeah, there's like this monkey herpes B virus that you can get if like a monkey spits on you like in a mucous membrane and then you like die and there's no cure. Yeah. So it's like why... Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds concerning. Yeah. So, I mean, the primate story was a, was a major concern. You know, that that's the question though. Like something like PERV, it's never caused human disease. There've been a lot of pig products transplanted into, into humans, inert ones like the valves, obviously, but also cells and other exposures and it's never caused human disease would it be a big deal hard to know the answer to that like you said we struggle already with all these human viruses but i don't know could you cause a pandemic could you expose mankind to a virus that they've not seen before that's kind of the concern i think most it sounds like a good (laughs) most you know people have been able to kind of push the concern about perv down and i think based on some of the things that have happened recently the fda is is probably coming around to being okay with it. But I think eGenesis's angle is to not have perv whatsoever. I think it can be probably bred down or bred out of even pigs that haven't had perv cut out. One of the things that I liked about the, the chimpanzee story was you mentioned that other people did it. 
Starzl, the great patron saint of transplant, did some uh, xenotransplant. Yeah. yeah, Starzl did chimpanzee kidneys. He did a baboon liver. You know, he jumped right into it. And right after Riesma, he did six kidneys very quickly and had survival from weeks to maybe 60 days. And, you know, like you said, they, they didn't have the, the uh, drugs we have now, but they, they would hammer people with immunosuppression and then they would get infection. But I just highlight with the drugs we have now, I think it's extremely likely that if we were using primates, which we're not, we'd be able to have successful outcomes. No one is arguing to go back to that. But from an immunologic standpoint, given how close like chimpanzee organs would be to humans, immunologically, you could do it. They're too small. The animal's protected. Again, you wouldn't be... They don't breed... I mean, one of the things about pigs, you can breed them at like four months of age. They have a litter of six to eight pigs. You know, they're cheap. We sacrifice, what, 100 million pigs in this country or more a year for food. Whether you're okay with that or not is a question, but it seems like people are okay with that. So can you imagine trying to breed primates? Yeah. I mean, that would yeah, not be. That would, go, that would not go well. <laughs> no, no. So pigs are essentially chosen, one, for the breeding aspect. It's already done, and people are generally okay with that because it's it's been established in the food industry. But also their kidneys are similar, right, to humans, it seems like? Yeah, size-wise, that's right. I mean, right, for chimpanzees, we were, they were doing en bloc both together, and, which is actually something we do when we get pediatric donors. But... The pig organs are, are roughly a, a similar size and, you know, seem to be able to be life-sustaining. Some of that research still needs to be done, but at least into primates. And they're universal donors, right? They don't have a blood cell antigen, right? Yeah, right. I mean, they're doing transgenics to knock out their blood cell antigen, oh, is, is my understanding. Is? I, oh, okay. Yeah. Gallsafe is the universal donor, right? Not not before that. Right. That's my understanding, that they, they did a knockout that knocked that out. One of the other bits of history that I liked in the NYU transplant, not the one that we're going to be talking about, the kidney was transplanted onto the leg. It was an external kidney, and it sounded a lot like the work I think it was Hume was doing at Peter Brent Br- yeah. Brigham, like some of the first human transplants. That's right. I mean, David Hume did. David Hume is another incredible character. He's like uh, this tragic character in many ways, but he did one into an L, into the arm very early on this temporary transplant, and then. Did a bunch of them in the leg, like on the femoral vessels, which is very easy to do. And then you can look at the kidney and follow it. Certainly not a good for long-term survival, but if you're putting it into a brain-dead recipient, it should be adequate. We're still going down that those pathways that he had hit. <laughs> I guess so. Originally. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, to- it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Nine, give it to us. Okay. I'm going to do my best here. So this case, as we mentioned, from the University of Alabama in in, uh, Birmingham. So the way they broke this down in the paper was the pre-transplant phase, the transplant phase, and the post-transplant phase. Pre-transplant, the recipient was a 57-year-old man who was declared brain dead after blunt force trauma to the head. The consent was obtained from next of kin. And at the time of enrollment in the study, the recipient was five days post-declaration of brain death. For what it's worth, he had AKI with a creatinine of 2.5 and was being maintained on multiple vasopressors as well as methylprednisolone to maintain hemodynamics. Is anybody aware of any other lines of research that use brain-dead patients? I can't remember any reading any studies in which this, the where we're experimenting on is a brain-dead but not dead, dead human subject. This does seem to be pretty unique there. Yeah, I I personally think that's one of the novel things here. There have been some studies like, you know, manipulating 
donors. So like doing things with temperature or steroids or this kind of thing to improve the organ outcomes after. But I think using a brain dead, I guess, I don't know if patient is the right word, as the model is novel and interesting and fascinating and worth in a, a point of discussion, I think. Can we talk about the, the decision to use a brain dead person as the recipient here for one sec? Do folks feel like there are ethical considerations that keep us from asking for a volunteer of someone who is not brain dead, uh, someone who might not get a transplant otherwise? I know the, the folks who did that heart transplant that, again, is also not published. Uh, and, and I think that the patient just passed away recently, about two months after the heart transplant was done. That's not a brain dead person. That's a brain alive person. Um, and I wonder if because folks can be maintained on dialysis as opposed to mechanical circulatory support for, for cardiac bypass stuff, like is, is that the reason we're, we're looking to brain dead folks as recipients or are there other reasons I here? think that's the point, right? As we have dialysis, we can, we can maintain people versus if you have, you know, you're in such bad cardiogenic shock that you, you're on an ECMO circuit, you know, that's not sustainable. I think because also first of type, right? I, obviously, like the NYU and UAB group were doing this at the same time, but since this hadn't been really done this way before, to make sure there wasn't hyperacute rejection in particular and things that could really harm a person when there's an alternative, I think was the key. I think now moving forward, this opens the door to allow it to happen, maybe in humans where you know at least you're not causing really hyperacute harm. Yeah. I just, I know there are folks who we've probably ruled out for their third or fourth or fifth transplant if they've had multiple acute rejections, right? They're off the list of people who we can reasonably transplant. And there are folks who might actually think about volunteering for a trial of something like this in the future. I know we'll, we can talk about ethics stuff later. I just wonder if that was a thought or, or folks have a sense of why, or if that was even something we could have reached out to people about before pursuing a, a brain dead recipient here. Or very, very highly sensitized folks that, you know, yeah. are not get a kidney for for a long time yeah, i just uh, i want to make one comment that like i think the brain dead recipient can be used to, to answer very specific questions and serves a very specific purpose which is what jordy said you know can the kidney work in a human are you going to get hyperacute rejection which at least from the primates we would think or assume the answer is no but hadn't been done in a human and to be able to follow them for a few days and see if perv gets transmitted to see you know what immune responses is there complement activation? Is there a deposition of things like that inside the kidney itself? But the brain dead person is only going to be sustained for 72 hours or something like that. So I personally think while that obviously sh should go through an IRB and should involve ethicists, it's one thing with a very specific thing you're testing. I think if we want to talk about the Maryland case where patients actually getting it, you know, there's a lot of people writing about who could be ethically recipients for xenotransplantation in this day and age. And, you know, this is a big topic. I'm totally fascinated by what happened in Maryland. And Mohammed Mahoudin is one of the world leaders in xenotransplantation. And Bart Griffith is a leading heart surgeon. But to do a patient outside of a trial who wasn't a candidate for a transplant otherwise because of noncompliance, you know, raises a lot of huge questions. And like you, like you guys said, the people there, most people are writing about that probably could be included in a transplant trial, a xenotransplant trial would be either a massively sensitized patient that you think can't get a human kidney. Maybe you could make an argument that someone who is blood type O and not expected to get a kidney for X number of years, maybe you could make that argument, but that's controversial. But to say someone is not a candidate for a transplant but can get a xenotransplant probably raises some, some flags, I would say. 
you know, this is the kind of thing they certainly Starzl would have done in a second. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> as he told me when I wanted to do to be involved in him in death and I was turned down, he's like, you just do it. You don't ask. You just do it. But, uh, you know, that that was uh, that's what they did in the 60s. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by it. And I think these people were real experts. But you're saying to the patient, you can't get a transplant. You can't get a, an LVAD. You're not a candidate for that. So you can have this Xeno transplant. And the reason you're, you can't get a transplant is your non-compliance. But like Xeno is going to take the most amount of medicines ever. So it's it, it raises some flags, I would it's say. It's almost like uh, there could be coercion, right? Because it's the you get this or you die as opposed to right. yeah. uh, the point with the dialysis patients where it is quite different. It's like you, you get this because you want to volunteer to do this. And if you don't, you have other options. Yeah, and I'll mention like Xeno kidneys into primates, there have been studies where they can get a mean survival of the kidney as a life-supporting organ in the primate for a mean of 400 days and even some people out farther. And I think Mahudin had a heart heterotopic into a primate for as long as 900 days. But that wasn't life-sustaining. That was heterotopic. I'm sorry. Help, help, help us out with, I don't understand, heterotopic versus life-sustaining. You know, with a normal heart transplant, it's orthotopic. So you take the old heart out and the new heart goes right where the old heart was. With gotcha. heterotopic, which is a model we use in the lab, you actually put the heart in the abdomen. You sew the aorta and the vena cava to the atrium. Uh, but, you know, you sew it into the abdomen and the heart starts beating and it's a model so that you can watch for ejection. But it's not life-sustaining, right? You're not, person has their own heart. And by person, you mean some kind of primate. Uh, correct. There actually were human heterotopic hearts done for people with temporary heart failure as a model to see if it could be an auxiliary helper, but that's pretty the minor. The world's weirdest LVAD. <laughs> exactly. This is pre-LVAD. Now we're getting really crazy. You know, there was this group in Germany that got a, an orthotopic heart pig to primate to last six months, and they had to do some fancy things because xeno organs, when you put them into like a primate, they grow massively, and the heart actually like doubles in size. So one of the genetic knockouts that I believe they had in the Maryland group, although it hasn't been published yet, so it's a little bit hard to know, you know, was stopping it from growing like that. But like they had to say to this recipient, uh, hopefully they said, you know, this has never been done in a human and our longest life sustaining in a primate is only six months and heterotopic we've got to, I mean, I, I don't know. Did they go into all that? Did they go into like, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Denton Cooley when uh, DeBakey went out of town and Cooley put the mechanical heart into someone, uh, which was very, very controversial. Wait, slow down and tell me that story from the beginning because I'm don't. i not familiar with this. <laughs> yeah, so this was in the 1950s. And if, you, if Denton Cooley was probably like the best surgeon in the world, he was a heart surgeon. And he worked with Michael DeBakey, who's probably the most famous surgeon in the world, who was a vascular and heart surgeon. And... Certainly, Dan Cooley said he was the he himself was the best surgeon in the world. But everyone said the guy was amazing. But they they ultimately didn't get along very well. And DeBakey was doing a lot of research and had an artificial heart that he was working on. But it, and it had been tried in some animals, but not a human. And the story goes that DeBakey got on a plane to fly to D.C. for some NIH meeting, and while he was in the air, Cooley <laughs> put the heart into a patient. And oh my God. He ultimately said he was trying to do it as a bridge to transplant. Who knows? Uh, DeBakey landed and then got landed and then heard the news on the TV. First, you know, mechanical heart done in Texas. And he jumped back on a plane and flew back and, you know, went ballistic. And that's what led to Cooley leaving DeBakey Center and starting Texas Heart across the street. And the patient ultimately, you know, lived through the surgery, but ultimately died. And I, I, I think actually, ultimately, the family sued and 
and Cooley got in a fair amount of trouble but was able to withstand it. I'm not saying this is as bad as that, but I think to do experiments on humans, you have to do it with the least amount of humans possible. You have to do it in a trial. You know, you have to have some reason to believe it can work. Like Jordy mentioned, you know, what the potential for coercion when someone doesn't have another choice and how much was discussed. I'm sure hopefully they discussed all of this, but I would think it should be done under a trial. That's the bottom line. So, so far in this case, we've gotten to brain dead. We're not making a lot of progress. Yeah, I don't know why you guys invited me onto this show because <laughs> I should shut up for a while. Yeah, you should see the first edition of this book. It was like a thousand pages long. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're two sentences into this case report right now. Okay, so moving on past brain dead. So we have the donor was a 13-month-old, 350-pound male genetically engineered pig. And I will tell you as the father of two small children who watch Peppa Pig, the image and the supplement of this pig intubated is giving me nightmares. <laughs> pig had a creatinine of 1.3 and a BUN of 19, which I'm told is normal for a pig. It was negative for porcine retrovirus C or PERV C, I guess plus a host of other pathogens that are in table four. And they subsequently performed a, a flow cytometric cross-match. So using, you know, kind of similar to what we do in humans, the donor lymphocytes with pre-transplant recipient serum, which was negative. Then they went on to the transplant phase. And what they did was they performed bilateral native nephrectomies in the recipient to, of course, induce anuria. Simultaneously, they procured the pig kidneys. There is a comment in the, in the report that there was injury to the left porcine renal vein, which was repaired intraoperatively. And then these kidneys were sequentially inserted into the bilateral iliac fossae. Josh, that's the hip bone, since I know you forgot your anatomy. <laughs> and then, um, I'm just, just kidding. That's perfect. <laughs> the cold ischemic time for the right kidney was four hours. For the left, it was around five and a half hours. And for induction immunosuppression, they use ATG at somewhat higher doses than at least we typically use at our center. It was 6.5 mg per kg. And they also used 1,800 milligrams of rituximab plus methylprednisone. And then they uh, maintained immunosuppression with tacrolimus and mycophenolate, so similar to human transplants. So Nan and, and Josh, in terms of those ischemic times, the four and the six hours, like how does that compare to like a live donor ischemic time? Because that's kind of like the, the parallel, right? Like this is a planned procedure. You can have the pig ready to go and, and pull out your kidneys whenever you want. Is this like approaching ideal for that? Or is this, this seems a little slow to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's in range. Like if you do living donor kidney and you have two operating rooms, you can have the recipient ready to go. And the second the organ comes out, you flush it and your cold time can be one hour. But sometimes we don't have two rooms. So we do living donor in the, in the same room to follow. And when we do that, it would be very similar to this scenario. I mean, we even do now through the National Kidney Registry shipped in live donors that are out to 10 or 15 hours, but you do have a little bit of risk of DGF. So I, I'm not sure if they just couldn't get, you know, two rooms given the challenges of this model. But I do think it falls into the range where you would think the risk of DGF or delayed graft function in a human living donor kidney would be 5%, maybe something like that. Obviously, this is different with this donor. And with a brain dead recipient, that milieu is going to change your DGF rate. Uh, and we know the recipient side plays a role in that. 
Wait, wait, I'm sorry, the recipient side plays a role in, D- in DGF? Yeah, I mean, there are donor and recipient factors, and we always, in our group, talk about the, the milieu, but we'll we'll often do, you know, like two deceased donors that seem exactly the same, and one will get DGF and one won't, but there'll be lots of recipient factors from obesity to retransplant to need for pressors. So you can imagine the instability of a brain-dead recipient may have, gotcha. may have okay that makes sense yep the number of recipients we have who are on vasopressors i'd imagine is pretty low right like you normally are not putting a kidney into someone who is hemodynamically unstable yeah but sometimes sometimes when we're doing the surgery they, they really don't tolerate anesthesia well and they need quite a bit of pressor doing the operation the other thing is they come in and we decide to try and not dialyze them and we take them to the oh these kinds of things and so their fluid status can be off a little bit so i do think in the OR, some of them end up on pressor. We also see this like subset of dialysis patients that are hypotensive, and uh, more and more of those are the folks that are not that are getting DGF and are having issues perfusing their kidneys post transplant. Like the sort of the patients that don't have a good reason for just being hypotensive on dialysis, not necessarily the ones that would be more pathological, like being preload dependent. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's a lot of brain dead patients can be very hemodynamically unstable. You know, we know that with all the catecholamines and different factors that, you know, get secreted after brain death. So, you know, there used to be this thought that you couldn't keep brain dead, patients isn't the right word, but, you know, brain dead donors going still, I hate to use the word alive because they're legally dead, but you you couldn't keep them going for long periods of time. But I think we have some examples where that may not be true, but many of them are unstable. Okay. What's next? So for what it's worth, the kidney histology of the pig kidney was normal, and they subsequently anastomosed the right kidney ureter to the bladder, uh, but the left kidney via a urostomy, uh, so they could separate you know, urine output from both kidneys. And they noticed prompt reperfusion, both by appearance and by Doppler. And then the right kidney actually started making urine pretty quickly, so they stayed within 23 minutes versus the left kidney did not. And biopsy of that kidney showed ATN, but no endothelial injury, which uh, is going to be important later on in this case. So then the post-transplant phase, the recipient was actually kept in the OR for the duration of the study and unfortunately developed progressive multi-organ failure, shock liver, pancytopenia, DIC, so was not doing well, was on a bicarbonate drip for severe acidemia, but... Despite all that, the xenografts were reportedly well-perfused throughout the duration of the study. And on day three, the recipient developed severe hemorrhagic or severe hemorrhage with shock, and the study was terminated 77 hours and 32 minutes post-reperfusion. Over that time, the right kidney made 700 cc's in a 24-hour period. They note scant in the left kidney. If you look in the supplement, it was somewhere around 250 cc's, 200 cc's, something like that. And the serum creatinine did not improve. And a 24-hour urine collection from the right kidney only showed 49 milligrams of of creatinine excretion. On post-op day one, histologic findings were consistent with TMA on biopsy. And then by day three, there was extensive tubular necrosis. However, there was no complement or immunoglobulin staining, including C4D staining on that biopsy. And post-termination analysis did show expression of human transgenes within the porcine kidney parenchyma. Can we talk about the TMA piece there a little bit? Is that something that we think is due to immunosuppressive meds? Do we think that's something due to the brain death milieu? Or do we think that's something due to the 
organ itself or is it is it way 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 too early to talk about those kind of things yeah i personally think it's hard to know the answer to that i I think when you look at big picture, that finding and the function of these kidneys, a little bit concerning, right? The TMA, I doubt it was from the immunosuppression. I bet it was more from the kidney injury, whether it was due to a xeno response, you know, immunologic response or something else. It's always hard to know because you have a brain dead recipient. So like, I don't think you can say, oh, this is what it would have done in a, in a healthier human. But at the same time, there's some disconcerting findings in terms of both function and pathology. I mean, one of the kidneys didn't work at all, and the other one was peaked. It's not a home run by, by any means. I guess the question is, is this rejection? And there's something unique about xenotransplants that it's not complement or immunoglobulin, at least the ones we stain for. Is, is that what this could represent? This is a very good transplant group, very knowledgeable people, good background in xeno. You know, part of it is you have to decide what was it they were trying to show. And with this short-term model, maybe they were just trying to show there wouldn't be hyperacute rejection, which I think is what Bob Montgomery's group saw at NYU and what this Alabama uh, group saw as well. But like in terms of beyond that, I don't understand why they didn't include one of the co-stimulatory blockade molecules like anti-CD40 or, or anti-CD154, because I think the um, all of the xeno literature has shown that if you use standard immunosuppression, the graphs don't last. They ultimately reject. One of the challenges has been these drugs, which are not currently FDA approved, although I think the FDA did approve it for the Maryland case in a one-time shot, they didn't use one of them. And I wonder if they were trying to see, could we use standard immunosuppression, or we're not really trying to see if there's long-term survival, we just want to see if there's hyperacute rejection. So I'm just a little unsure why that decision was made. But I feel like all you can say about this result is they didn't have hyperacute rejection, they had a little bit of function, but there were a lot of abnormalities, which may have been due to immunologic, may have been due to the recipient characteristics, a little bit hard to know. One question, was the study intended from the outset to be just three days long, or was it only three days long because things were looking sour? I believe it was supposed to be around that time because my understanding is the concept was to ensure no hyperacute rejection. And everything happening okay. to this person in terms of the acidemia and whatnot seems like what you expect from someone who went from being dead to really dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> it sounded like they were opening up the surgical site every day to go in and look at the organ, too, and after... To get a biopsy, right? Yeah. And then it was after the third one, after the 72-hour one, they were trying to close, and they couldn't actually close and keep it closed without it bleeding. So I don't know if it was supposed to end then, but it was like, it's definitely going to end now. Yeah. Okay, we're done. Yeah, call it. Yeah, it's really like this is our model to see if we get initial function or hyperacute rejection in a human type recipient. Like that's like the whole, it hasn't been done. So one person could say, well, we know it can work in the primates and they have alpha-gal antibodies. So we already know that. A different person could say, yeah, but until you've done it in a human, you don't actually know. And if you want to get people into human trials, is this a required first step? I don't know. We could talk about that. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like I feel confident to go on, proceed with human trials after this data. Like, yeah, there was no hyperacute rejection, but there was also no function, right? <laughs> that seems like a pretty important issue. It's interesting if you look at the difference between how the media covered this, which you, you just read the media reports and you're like, oh, this was a success. And then you kind of peel back the layers right. of this and you're like, I, I don't know how successful this was. Right. The, the fact that it made urine was considered a success by the media, but Boy, we see enough patients 
that make urine that you have progressive renal failure there. One of the other questions they were asking, though, is can we correlate cross-match, like this special type of histocompatibility testing to the function of the organ? Because that was another big factor is how are we going to predict which of these organs actually won't reject in a human? And do we have to invent new ways of assessing for rejection preemptively in, in this situation? So I think that was the other key goal that they were looking at is just can you do some sort of cross-matching, which they did with the negative and a positive control, and then does that act actually predict whether or not you see acute cellular rejection and, and hyperacute rejection, which is what they didn't see. The question now is, though, is there some other type of rejection that we just don't know what we don't know? And I think that that's going to be left unanswered for the time being, per uh, Josh's point. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. When you read the news reports in The Times and USA Today and whatever about Bob Montgomery's uh, NYU one, you know, he said it perfused like a living donor. It was beautiful. It worked right away. I thought that's awesome. I mean, it's a very short-term thing, but it at least those organs work right away in a human. This felt different. It Clearly, they didn't function very well. And again, I totally think it could be because you're putting them into a brain-dead recipient. But when you look at the primate data that's really good and you think we're ready for a human trial because people have a mean of longer than a year and even some that are on 900 days. And I think we always have said, if, if you can get a year survival consistently, that's probably good enough for a human trial. We could argue about that, but I don't know. I mean, I think you really have to be focused on the fact that this was trying to look at one thing, which was, could it go into a human and would it get hypercutely rejected? And then like the cross match, like Jordy said, and if that's what you're looking at, then this is great. I just don't know how to judge the success of the cross-match. I think that was the point of looking for the acute cellular rejection, right? I get there was no hyperacute. Right. It wasn't filled with antibodies. Also ACR, right? There was also like the C4D that was negative and the IgG and the IgM right. and, and all the other typical immunologic testing that when we see rejection in most transplants, it's this, it's this acute cellular rejection. It's not hyperacute rejection. They were going with what we know, right? Like we know to look for those things because that's what we look for in human to human transplantation is do you have a, a positive C4D? Do you have any evidence of complement mediated issues as well? And they didn't see that. So that I think that 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 was what they were going for is can the cross match predict that aspect of it the things that we know how to look for I, I think that the things we don't know how to look for we don't know how to look for i was i did find the tma a little disconcerting at josh brought that up earlier you know because we do sometimes see that in antibody mediated rejection and i don't quite know why it's there so so quickly and like yeah maybe it's from tac but i don't think that's likely the case here so that was disconcerting what do you think the next human transplant looks like that depict the human transplant looks like do you take a stable dialysis patient who wants to put a pig into them can you do dialysis as needed after that like is that is that what the next experiment looks like i mean i think in the very near future and what does that mean a year two years we're going to see human trials of pig kidneys i do and i a number of people from the people that are in these articles and montgomery and joe tector who's down at miami now and a few others are poised to do human trials. And they're going to be trials. They're going to be kidneys. I think they're likely going to use their full barrage of immunosuppression, including the costumatory blockade. They're going to be approved by the FDA. The big question is going to be who, who are the patients going to be? And I don't think they're just going to be anyone who wants to get a pig kidney. They're going to be people that, for one reason or another, have bad access to a human transplant, whether it's because they're sensitized or maybe they had rapidly recurrent FSGS and someone decides that, and some expected wait time of over X number of years, although I don't know exactly what that number will be. I do think patients will sign up for it. I really do. Yeah, I do. Yes. Don't you guys? Yeah. 
I argue, I think that ideally, like in our minds for comfort level, we think it's going to be these situations where people are sort of in a state of desperation. But I think that's not what the trialists are going to go for. As someone who is a trialist, and I've worked with Paige when she was setting up the first uterus transplants, they were looking for the perfect donors and for the perfect recipients. They wanted people that never had any kind of vascular injury, right? Because you wanted to make sure that this was going to be able to sew in really, really well. You wanted to have somebody who didn't have previous transplants because you didn't want to risk losing the organ because of some like unexpected immunologic response. And so I, I, I wonder if they're going to actually go for healthier, less high-risk recipients, and that's going to be the thing that's controversial. I just, I totally agree with what you just said, and I, it's a great, the uterus transplant's a great topic, which should be a different show, but um, really fascinating area. But I think- Did make the book. <laughs> it's on the, it's on the <laughs> short list. <laughs> the spinoff of Uterus JC that'll be coming to you next year. That's right. I am, I can talk about any topic, even if I don't know about it. What do I say? I don't know the data, <laughs> so I feel free to, <laughs> I feel I can speak for you. I, I totally agree with Jordy's point. Ethically, I think the patient who's 100% sensitized, who you predict is going to wait 10 years or more, you could probably ethically make a good argument to do a xenotransplant. But it's the worst patient to do it on. They're likely a retransplant. They've probably been on dialysis for a long time, probably have access problems. They have tons of antibodies. Hopefully, this cross-match that they used is going to work, but maybe it won't. They're probably going to have been on immunosuppression forever. So they're going to be dangerous patients to put on tons of immunosuppression. Yeah. They're the kind of people who die from infection. Not as bad as a dead body, but... Right. I mean, you'd love to take the 20-year-old IgA nephropathy, but you know how could you justify that? So could you find someone who's blood type O, who's day one on the list, who really wants to do it, who doesn't have a living donor? Is that ethically okay if they're really informed? There is some data, at least from the primate study, that it doesn't seem to be a lot of sensitization after a primate transplant's rejected. And that's always been my big concern if you take one of these patients and you do a pig transplant, and then they get sensitized to things we've never heard of before, and they will never get a transplant again. I think it's part of the consent. You have to tell the patient. The data suggests that might not happen, but this could be your only transplant. You know what I mean? Um, so it's tricky. You know, who do you who do you do this for? A very complex decision. I have patients that start dialysis at age eighty, and they're never going to be able ever considered for a transplant. But some of them are like pretty healthy otherwise, right? They, they have a long history of hypertension, of course, and probably have some coronary disease as all 80-year-old dialysis patients do, but otherwise, they're fine. We, like we always say, like, they might look really good, but often they act their age after a transplant. I, I just would really worry because you're going to have to really hit them with immunosuppression. And so... I, I worry about it. I, listen, I'm a believer in Xeno, just to be clear, but I think the ethical challenges of who the patient should be, and lots of really good people are writing about this, David Cooper and Ellen Kirk and many others, uh, Stuart Connectly, and thinking hard about who the right patient should be, and there'll be ethicists involved in that and others. It's tricky, though. I'm thinking in terms of we're in the mess we're in, right? Because this was a person that was mostly dead and then became completely, severely, utterly dead and then we don't know is this tma part of their like dic milieu is it part of their immunosuppression we have no idea and so this is the problem with having bad substrate to begin with and and i really think that they're going to push hard to do those young igas so that they know that if things don't go well it's because they don't go well if things go well you started with a good substrate that's the only way you're going to see a positive outcome i do i will say the leaders in transplant the people who are probably going to be running the trials are thinking heavily about this and are openly writing about it. But I, I do worry about it as well. I mean, you look at the Maryland patient, that person was on ECMO and, you know, multiple previous surgeries. And these are really challenging 
patience. So to get a good outcome is going to be tough. But at the same time, again, these these people who are thinking of running the trials are writing these articles about who the patient should be. But I, I really, I just want to reiterate, I do believe it's always been the story in transplant. People will sign up to try it. They get that they're waiting for someone to die for their organ. They want to push science. They are handling their illness so beautifully and they want to be a part of that. And I think it's really special that our patients are willing to do that. But we obviously have to play a role in protecting them, making sure they understand what they're getting into. Let's face it, if any of you have renal failure, you're going to try really hard to find a human living donor. You know, who do you advise to do to do as you know, you know, in the next decade? I don't know. Yet I believe I'm a believer. (laughs) One of the things in your book, you talk about this farm that one of Mm. these companies that's raising these pigs and and you talk glowingly about the farm and how big it is. And then you say they'll be able to produce a thousand transplants a year. And all I can think of is not enough. Not, Not enough. Even yeah, close yeah. enough, right? You know, funny enough that that was United Therapeutics who bought Revivacor, whose pigs are the ones used in the article we discussed, as well as the Montgomery. So you know, the big United Therapeutics. There's eGenesis, which is the George Church spinoff. Uh, Tector has a, a company, Makana Therapeutics. There are a few others. Yeah, I think they have the ability to make pigs at the level of what our our food sources do. I mean, not yet. It'll take time. But I think once they figure out which pig it should be, they'll be able to mass produce them. But yeah, it'll take some time. But I think that changes everything. Like Then we go from thinking of transplant as the 100,000 patients on the way list for kidney and the whatever, 20,000 for liver, how many for heart. Then it's a game changer. If you can start making organs that you can genetically match to a recipient, patients with heart failure, patients with type 2 diabetes, you know, it just becomes almost this part of longevity rather than this treatment of a specific disease. We're very far from that, but I think the science is moving very quickly. And as much as like that old quote, xenotransplantation is the future of transplantation will always be the future of transplantation, which I think Shumway said, but it's also Roy Collins said a version of that quote. I believe we're at a, a different place now. I think CRISPR is a part of that. I think tons of money has poured into the arena. I think tons of great people are working on it. And I think our primate data is nothing like what it was in the 90s when people were as excited or close. I think we're in a different point. Now it's the challenge of how do we ethically get over that hump? And I think like Alan Kirk writes beautifully about this stuff. How can you ethically do trials with the smallest number of people possible to answer the questions you need to answer. That's what he said. So that's the key thing. You can't just shoot out and randomly do it. You have to design trials where you can have the smallest number of people answer as many questions as possible in an ethical way with informed consent. And I believe we are going to be able to do that as a community, but it's going to take real discipline and airing out with ethicists that are you know trained in these types of studies. I mean, it seems like the obvious next question is like, okay, so there was no hyper acute rejection, but there was also no function, right? Like (laughs) we need to see some kidney function on this. I'd like to argue that it's a brain dead recipient. It's a terrible milieu. They're not in an ICU. You know, what care are they getting right in your lab? I don't know the details of that. We already know in primates, we can make it last. So if you just say, this was just to answer this one question, you feel comfortable. But I have the same discomfort drill as you do. When I read that, I was like, okay, um, Let's go back to the primate stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing, you know, at least with kidneys, if the organ fails, you're able to remove it. That's one of the challenges of the heart is if it fails, the patient dies. And that's not where I think the trials are going to be. So we've seen a 
couple of trials in uh, kidney and we've seen one in heart. Any reason to think that we're not going to see liver and lung and pancreas and intestines? I, so I, I, should, I think we'll see islet cells. I think uh, there's some good groups working on islets and these companies I mentioned, certainly eugenesis has a role. I know that uh, Minnesota groups have been working on islets. So I think xeno islets will be something that'll be very interesting and very potentially doable. And the idea of modifying them genetically and doing cellular transplant seems really exciting. I think United Therapeutics is very interested in lung. I, this, I don't know if you know this, Martine Rothblatt, their founder, her, her story is that her daughter, Genesis, got lung disease, primary pulmonary hypertension or something like that. Oh. And she was given a death sentence. And Martine Rothblatt, who was one of the founders of Satellite Radio, is this genius. She left her job and started United Therapeutics and in a short number of years discovered the one drug that works for primary pulmonary hypertension. And now she's veered into the Xeno world. So she's very focused on a Xeno lung. But I just don't think it'll be one of the early trials. And I think heart is a good question. I mean, Mohamed Mahoudin is the, probably the premier world leader in Xeno research, and he's interested in heart. But I just think the challenge of doing a heart trial, so much of this is going to be really getting out there what we think success is and being careful about what's written and what we say to the media, not lying in any way, but just being very, very clear. And I think if you do it and five people die, you know, that's it. It's over. Whereas I think if you very carefully design a kidney trial, you have ways to get the kidney out if it's going bad. You have expectation that you're going to be able to get one year survival and you have some good outcomes, people can get really excited about that. It's interesting you, you talk about that because in your book, you talk about the early successes and early failures in heart transplant. And that kind of had that same kind of explosion. Totally. And that also kind of collapsed. It's such a replay. So like, you know, the transplant world was, I mean, they were very aggressive, but they were working hard to get good outcomes. They really under tried to learn the immunosuppression. It was a very scientific approach. And then, you know, that was starting in the 50s and the 60s. And then like 67, 68, when Christian Barnard did the first heart. And like in the next year, like 100 people did hearts. They didn't know anything about immunosuppression. And then Cooley jumped in. He's like, I'll sew these in so fast, it won't even matter. And like all of them were dying because they were dying of rejection. And, you know, it, it really set transplant back big time. And people like Roy Collin were horrified. They were like, these cardiac guys are going to ruin our field. And it really took Norm Shumway to like sit back and do the research for a few years to get cardiac to work. But it really kidney is, I feel like kidney doesn't get the respect it deserves because not only is it a beautiful organ and a kidney transplant is probably the best thing. You're singing our song. Here. I mean, I know. I'm saying this for you. When I'm on the cardiac group next, I'm going to be like, those losers and kidney. No, no. I I truly believe the kidney transplant is the best thing we do in medicine. It, it makes their life so much better. It saves their life, makes them live longer. And it's cheaper. Like what? When I do a kidney transplant, that's a, living there in a kidney, it feels so good. But it's also where all the good research, all the science has been. It's a challenging organ, but it's where we've learned everything about immunology. You know, it's where the Nobel Prize uh, went uh, to Joe Murray. I know Starzl was angry to his death about that, but, you know, it's, it's where the innovation happened and it's where it's going to happen again. I'm curious what you guys think because, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this is successful. We think this is going to increase access to transplants for people. But how is this going to be monetized by these companies? I mean, Revivacor is already trademarking their pig. So, what, what, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think is that holds in the future. I love that question. I completely think they're going to massively monetize it. I, I think this is really interesting because 
back in the 90s, a bunch of big pharmaceutical companies, Novartis being one of them, but MetBear, all these others dove into transplant and got really excited and they dumped like a billion dollars into transplant and it didn't work out. Like they, the science was great. They actually got to an alpha-gal knockout, but the outcomes clearly were nowhere near a human trial. They get like 60 days or whatever. So all those companies bailed. And then it was all researched by NIH, by a few rich people, but mostly by, you know, government type of grants. And then a few companies got in like United Therapeutics, but come CRISPR and this excitement about the world has changed, we can start doing things we never could do before. I think that really helped this idea of transplant of big companies saying, oh, this is going to happen again. And they started dumping money in again. Now, don't get me wrong. The scientists were there the whole time doing the research, but the money's pouring in. And I think their expectation is that they'll find some specific recipe of genetically modified pig that's their their gal TM, or it's going to be something more complex than that. That can probably work for all the organs. So they'll knock out the blood type. They'll knock out the growth thing so that one pig can do heart, can do kidney, ultimately liver. And then that'll be patented up the wazoo. And, you know, they'll be able to charge a mint for every one of those transplants. And I don't think just one company will succeed. I mean, it's like the vaccines, a few different companies succeeding is we all win. But I think their expectation is this is not just not limited to transplant. This becomes how we treat lots of disease. We can start making blood vessels for bypass grafts. We can human tissue for heart valves for maybe one of the reasons pig heart valves don't last long enough. Maybe there's an immunologic component. So we can start making heart valves. We can make bone grafts. We, we can transplant people that had a heart attack rather than doing a bypass. Like I think the sky's the limit on how, how big this could be. And I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to shed a tear if we start taking money out of DeVita's pocket and putting it into yeah. these new companies. Oh, uh, but right? DeVita's I mean, put some money into Zeno, by the way. Well, that, I mean, that's fine, but it's just, I, I feel that if we decrease, literally start moving people from dialysis to transplant, like there's a lot of money in dialysis and that seems like a good redistribution of investment, right? Because dialysis just doesn't feel like we're doing patients a huge favor. Those patients are not thriving with that therapy. Having mental images of the island of Dr. Moreau and how they're going to monetize that as well. It's like putting a man on the moon to me. It's the kind of innovation that just is going to require a massive investment of money. Not so that good scientists will do it. I mean, I firmly believe scientists ultimately don't really care that much about the money. They might care about being the person who did it. Like Tom Starzl never gave a crap about money. And there's tons of examples of innovators that don't. But I think in order to get this to work, it's going to take billions of dollars. Then these companies are going to make way more than that. Any final thoughts? Are we ready to kind of ready to wrap up here? Does anybody have any other thoughts about the, about the big Yeah, I just want to point out that I love that it's a female first and last author surgeons. I just thought that was so badass. Just had to make sure that everyone knows that. And they're bad. They're badasses to you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about these people? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Paige was a, she got her MD and PhD out of Penn. So I knew her for several years. I think that we were both fellows the same year, you know, similar to Josh, like we were fourth or fifth or eighth or 10th year fellows. Um, And she, she's fantastic. She's a transplant surgeon and she's got a PhD in immunology. So she was working full-time in a immunology lab while working full-time as a transplant surgeon with an infant. That's like my entire mental image of Paige. And so she's got superpowers um, and just a cool, really like good-natured lady. And she uh, had done, like she started up the uterus transplant program at Penn. And I think they did, it was maybe the first deceased donor uterus transplant, I believe it was at Penn. Um, And she was the one who'd done it. That was a big passion project of hers originally. And that's where I had sort of jumped in with the, like, I I, I was like looking at ambulatory blood pressure monitor 
considering for every single person they were considering for a uterus transplant because they wouldn't let anyone through unless everything was perfect. And so it's just, she just has a lot of innovation and a lot of vision and just, I think, wants to really just change the world. And then Jamie Law did her training at Hopkins, but is from Alabama originally and has been back down there for a long time. And she recruited Paige there pretty recently to run the translational research group there. So I think we're going to keep seeing really cool things from them. They're both just incredibly bright. If you've seen some of the other work that they've done in the transplant field, tons of innovation and things that other people just hadn't thought to ask the questions about. Yeah, I mean, I'll just reiterate, they're a fantastic group. Both of them are amazing and they're going to be leaders in this. And they're also like highly ethical people who understand all this. So I think one of the things we have going for us is most of the people in this field are thinking about all of the things we talked about a lot higher levels than I think about them. In general, surgery is a, I think of it as a male-dominated field. I know that the transplant surgeon where I work is a, is a woman, first author and senior author are women. Is transplant uh, a field that has a, a little bit more equity? I think it's getting better. Like we, Jordy used the word badass, which I like. We have a number of badass women surgeons in our field that that is awesome. And I think it, it, like in our own fellowship, two of our four fellows are women. There are a number of division chiefs and chairs who are uh, transplant surgeons. I mean, and Nancy Asher comes to mind out at San Francisco, who just stepped down from being chair, but total badass. And like Kim Altoff. And there, there are many others that I could mention. So we still can do better as a field, but I do think it's a field that has some superstars that are leading, that are mentoring a ton of young women that are moving up. So I think it's an open field. I've trained a number of women and now have a number of female partners who are all awesome. So no, oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can always do better, but it's, it's a, the field's making progress. Excellent. Uh, any other thoughts on the, on the, uh, the pig xenotransplant story? Buckle up. It's coming. It's going to be, listen, I'd like to remind people, transplant is a new field, like in the forties and fifties, total science fiction, people laughed at it, you know, seventies, it was people working hard, getting terrible outcomes. Eighties with cyclosporin, it became reliable reality, changed the world. We're not far from that. There's still people that were practicing in that era. And now we're at, in my humble opinion, the next quantum, you know, change in our field. There are other amazing things going on in our field. That doesn't mean it's going to happen in one year, but 10 years, you know, I think it's really a possibility. And it's so exciting to me, but we have to do it cautiously and carefully. But if you're a young person thinking about a field, there's a lot of amazing innovation going on here. Lots of things that dialysis didn't achieve in less time. Does anybody have a, a tubular secretion? This is an opportunity to talk about anything that has caught your fancy or is interesting you right now. It could be a television show you're watching, a book you're reading, a podcast you're listening to, or some other some other things. Anybody have an example they'd like to, to start off with? I can throw out mine. So I'm uh, reading. I don't know if you guys have heard of this author, Luis Penny. Oh, my God. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, no. I'm glad I went first. Yeah. <laughs> You go, you go. It's amazing. <laughs> She's a Canadian author that's written a series of books that center around a, a single character who's the homicide detective in Quebec, which is apparently somewhere in Canada. <laughs> and it's, they're just very well written. They're, they're basically thrillers that are disguised as detective slash mystery novels, but just a really good pleasure read if you're just looking for something to take your mind off things and really get, get hooked on something. Outstanding. Josh, you got something? Well, I was good. I love Louise Penny. I, I love to read and I try to go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. And I picked up her first book and I read all 17 rapidly in a row. They're brilliant. She's a wonderful writer, really a lot of fun. 
Excellent. Excellent. Other Josh, what do you got? Uh, sure. So I feel like we have a very Jewish heavy crowd for this particular episode. We were joking about calling it the Passover version of NFJC. How is this xenotransplant different from all other xenotransplants? <laughs> <laughs> and asking several questions about this particular paper. Um, I actually was inspired because uh, I've started listening to this uh, podcast called Chutzpod, which is a Jewish-themed <laughs> podcast that includes uh, Josh Molina, who's an actor who's from the West Wing, and Rabbi Shira Stutman, who used to be the rabbi at Sixth and I in Washington, D.C. It's designed both for people who are Jewish and for people who want to understand Jews better. And so since there are so many of us in medicine, I think it's like not a terrible thing to plug in this setting. And they talk about both the Bible portion, the Torah portion of the week, and also about some like interesting issues that have come up in the news and like a Jewish perspective on it and some cultural topics and language topics that I think are really fun. Um, so for someone who's kind of drifted spiritually over the course of my life, it's something I just enjoy listening to on the way home on, on Thursday or Friday. Okay, so for my tubular secretion, I have a Josh Molina story. There's a cool resort island in northern Michigan called Mackinac. It's, and, we're, and the most fancy hotel on there is called the Grand Hotel. And I, my wife and I were staying at the Grand Hotel, and we're in this very cool bar at the top of it. And there's Josh Molina having a drink, and he's with his wife, and they're minding their own business. And my wife and I look at him, and we we say he looks recognizable, but we can't place him. But we don't realize that we're looking at a movie star. And our final conclusion is he must be the new cantor at the local <laughs> temple. <laughs> so we ask him, are you the new cantor at Temple Israel? And he very politely says, no, you have me confused with someone else. And I am sure he is laughing his ass off inside. <laughs> He's probably like, that's the best compliment I've ever gotten. <laughs> I, that's right. And I don't know if he remembers the story, but it, my, my wife and I, we laugh at that story all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome Jordan, yeah mine is the only one that's totally unrelated there's a, a youtube channel that i love it's called primitive technology and it's this guy who's in this like very remote part of queensland australia and there's no speaking in it and it's just him building things where he could like survive in the middle of nowhere with just his bare hands without any kind of tools except for using like stones and things like that it's it's you know one of those things that people used to binge on before COVID because the last time that he had updated was like three years ago and everyone was curious what happened to him if he like disappeared during COVID why wouldn't you just go into the woods and live in the woods during COVID wouldn't that be the prime time to videotape this uh, and have millions and millions of views um, and he actually had so many views that he was able to like buy an enormous plot of land on which to like keep doing these videos like I think he bought like an entire junk small jungle and he uh, so he disappears and he just posted his first video two weeks ago from, from in three years uh, so he is still alive. We don't know what happened to him, why he wasn't there. Um, he has like no communication. No one knows anything about this guy except for the YouTube channel Primitive Technology. So I recommend it. It's pretty cool. You can learn some cool tricks about, you know, how to survive the next scarier pandemic that hopefully never happens. Um, so yeah, well, we're not done with this one. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>